0: Rita Ranch has been a bustling Tucson suburb for over 30 years. But in 1903, there was nothing but lonely desert what's now Houghton and Rita Road. One January morning that year, a communication error resulted in a long-forgotten head-on collision between two passenger trains that remains the worst rail disaster in Arizona history. Welcome to the Tucson History Podcast. I'm Greg Garinger, your host. And now... It's Tales of the Esmond Trainwreck. In the early years of the 20th century, railroads continued to grow at a breakneck pace. By 1902, there were 200,000 miles of rail, Double what it was just 20 years before, and it was just over 30 years prior in 1869 that the first transcontinental railroad was completed when Leland Stanford drove that final golden spike at Promontory Summit in Utah. By the dawn of the new century, the biggest cities and tiniest hamlets were all serviced by steam locomotive, and millions of Americans were able to travel in relative comfort from one side of the nation to the other. In the wee hours of the morning, Wednesday, January 28, 1903, the Crescent City Express was traveling east through the Arizona Territory, bound for New Orleans on the Southern Pacific Line. Heading west was the Sunset Limited, with the final destination of San Francisco. Around 3 a.m., both trains approached lonely Esmond Station near the tiny farming village of Vail. A single rail line meant telegraph communication between stations was imperative to allow trains to pass safely. At Vail Station, incorrect instructions were picked up by the conductor of the Sunset Limited, resulting in the worst rail disaster in Arizona history. Here in the third decade of the 21st century, It's hard to imagine what technology was like at the dawn of the 20th century. In a nation of 76 million, about 600,000 phones were in use by 1900. The vast majority of Americans simply couldn't afford them. And even in cities, most Americans didn't have electricity. While in rural areas, the infrastructure often didn't even exist yet. The American West was vast and empty. And it's striking to imagine these two trains barreling through the total darkness of night across the Sonoran Desert. (coughs) Crescent City passengers had seen a few lights as they stopped at Maricopa, south of Phoenix. And Tucson would have certainly been their most brightly lit stop since Yuma several hours earlier. Those on board the Sunset Limited had seen nothing but tiny towns and stations in southern New Mexico and southeastern Arizona since passing through El Paso and Las Cruces the previous evening. Stops like Deming, Wilcox, and Benson did little to break up the monotony. But as both trains approached Esmond Station, the passengers would become a part of Arizona history. Listening to Tales of the Esmond train wreck on the Tucson History Podcast. I'm Greg Garanger. Coming up in just a few, author Bill Colts will discuss in detail the events that led to that train wreck. But first up is JJ Lamb, president of the Vale Preservation Society. I really enjoyed your piece in the Vail Voice back in December 2017 about the Esmond train wreck, and I do encourage everyone to Google it. JJ, what made you interested in the event?
1: I um, am very interested in any historical event that is interconnected with Vail.
0: So tell me a little bit about the history of the Vail station.
1: Okay, so Vail started out as a little railroad sighting. It was uh, when the railroad came through in 1880. Uh, there was just one line, and of course, today, we're all used to having uh, two lines, uh, the North Track and the South Track. And in Vail, they're only about 500 feet apart, and so that's the original town site, and that's why we call Vail the town between the tracks. But in 1903, there was still only one track, and that was the main line, it's the North Line today. And um, that little siding was used so that east and westbound trains could pass. When the rails were first laid in 1880, the uh, Southern Pacific uh, engineers decided to site the rail line along the old wagon road. So the reason that Vale is where it is today is because that was the last flat piece of land before the wagon road veered off just a little bit to the northeast and entered Sienega Creek. Kind of game changer for Vail, what uh, made it a, a little more important uh, railroad stop was the Helvetia mine so when the price of copper went up in the mid 1890s and cities and towns across america wanted to have those great electric lights all of that had an impact here so the Helvetia mining company needed a place to ship their ore from first they went to the Pima county supervisors in tucson and said, if you'll split the cuffs with us, we'll build that road to Tucson and take all that business there. Well, the board of supervisors didn't act quickly. They, you know, just wanted to think about, you know, how to make the best business deal, I'm sure. So the Helvicia Mining Company uh, got tired of waiting around and they took $10,000 of their own money and they built a road to the nearest railroad spot. And that was bale siding. You know, it became a much more important break bulk point for shipping ore and of course shipping cattle from local ranches. And things got so busy out here at this little siding that the train was having to stop quite frequently. People would stand uh, next to the track and, and flag down the train. And the Southern Pacific decided it was worth investing in building a little depot at Vail. And that depot was built in 1901. Well, Vail Siding became called Vail Station at that point.
0: And where exactly was Vail Station located?
1: If you're on I-10 heading east then you take Colossal Cave Road um, north, it's just about a mile from I-10 to where the station was.
0: In January 1903, at the time of the wreck, how many people were there in Vail?
1: Uh, there were probably about 150 people, probably about mm, 15, 20, 25 of them worked for the railroad. There were actually quite a few people who were teamsters because Vail was a break of bulk point. So if you had your own team and a large wagon, uh, there was always ore to haul. Uh, mm-hmm. There was always materials to haul because there's so much limestone. Making lime was kind of a cottage industry. People had built lime kilns and that lime then could be put into bags and taken to Tucson and, and sold for people then to put lime plaster on the exterior of their adobe houses.
0: In your 2017 Veil Voice article, you talk about a family that was up well before dawn on that January morning and saw the light of the fire.
1: Okay, so that family, um, they they were teamsters. So Alma and Florence Harris, their home was right about where Rancho Del Lago is now. So they were they were living maybe maybe a mile north of Vale um, Vale's Depot, which would have been about 15 feet on the north side of the north track, right in between uh, Old Vale Road and Old Vale Middle School. The story has come down in, through that family for well over a hundred years about how when they woke up that morning and looked to the west. The whole sky was glowing orange, and because of the lay of the landscape, of course, they couldn't see exactly what was causing that, but it was just, you know, very distressing to them.
0: The crash site was right around Rita Road and Houghton. Were there any homes there, or was it as lonely as lonely could be at that time?
1: Oh, it was as lonely as lonely could be. There, there were um, railroad families living at Esmond Station, and there was the section house, which would have probably, I'm going to guess, have six to eight individuals. And some of those individuals would have had families.
0: JJ, thanks so much for being with us and keeping the history of Vail alive.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: You can see some great videos about Vale history on JJ's YouTube page. Just search JJ Lamb. And now on the Tucson History Podcast, we are joined by Bill Colt, a huge railroad enthusiast and historian and author of Tucson Was a Railroad Town. Welcome, Bill. Hey, great to be here with you, Greg. Since it played the major role in the Esmond train wreck, first let's talk about the process trains had to follow back in 1903 while navigating a single rail line. How did the train conductors go about getting the orders from the station masters?
2: Well, at the time, there was no radio communicator on the railroad. Things were handled by the train schedules, but because traffic was running so heavy at that time, trains ran oftentimes many hours late. When that happened, the dispatcher issued a train order or flimsy on a piece of paper, much like a piece of tissue paper that was telegraphed to each station affected along the rail line, the telegraph operator at that station, then recorded the order onto the flimsy. When the conductor arrived at the station for a particular train, the telegraph operator handed that order to the conductor. His job was to read it aloud. When the telegraph operator was convinced that the conductor had the order correct, he signed off on it and the train proceeded. That was in effect until about 1910. The error occurred at Vail Station, 21-year-old Telegraph operator Frank E. Clough received two orders that morning. One called for the Sunset Limited heading west to pull out on the sidetrack at Wilmont station for a passing freight train. The other called for it to take a sidetrack at Esmond station. When conductor OC Parker entered Vale station, he grabbed only one of the two orders and raced out to move his train ahead quickly. That's how the error occurred.
0: And so the eastbound Crescent City Express, when it stopped in Tucson, it wasn't instructed to do anything. Correct. The crash occurred right about where the fries is at Houghton and Rita Road, and the track that was there at the time had a bend or a curve that didn't allow the trains to see one another leading to that collision, right?
2: Right. Neither uh, engineer saw The other trains headlamp until they were almost on top of each other.
0: Is there an accurate record of the number of people that died?
2: You know, to this day, the numbers are not certain. The Southern Pacific Railroad did not take tickets from passengers heading east, and all passengers heading west turned their tickets in at Los Angeles. So they didn't really have an accurate record of who was on that train, or either train. Of the coroner's juries determined that there were 14 people killed. One determined only that the engine men were killed and declared the others unnamed male bodies. The other was completely unsure as to who died in the wreck.
0: But both engineers and firemen
2: died. Uh, And uh, one fireman died. And he was aboard the Sunset Limited. That was Fireman George McGrath. And uh, he was an interesting character, Greg, because baseball player here in town and a well-liked young fella... Uh, He was set to be married on February 1st to his sweetheart, who was a a well-known young lady in Tucson. He got up early that day before, and he confided to his sweetheart that he saw himself and engineer Jack Bruce in a head-on collision that resulted in his death. And then later on, he told his landlady that if he was brought in on a stretcher, it was because of a careless dispatcher.
0: At the end of the Crescent City Express, a Pullman car detached after the wreck. Tell us about that.
2: Well, right after the crash, streams of fuel oil, which the trains were running on at that time, run down both sides of the track and ignite almost all the cars. One Pullman car is not burning, and passengers help push it away from the wreck. But it gets away when there's a a Pullman porter inside, and it starts rolling back downhill into Tucson, 14, 15 miles to where it reaches the yard just about the time a wreck engine is pulling out of the yard to go and help people at the wreck. Well, that wild Pullman slams into the front of that engine and knocks a fireman, Maynard Flood, right off it and onto the ground. Oh, Maynard was <laughs> that uh, one of the fellas that Maynard's Market and Kitchen is now named for and uh, became a, quite a prominent engineer here.
0: You also have a great story about a gentleman from Mesa that was on one of the trains.
2: Yes, I was contacted by a fellow, Niall Latham, a journalist for the Arizona Republic, back in about 2001. And he had some questions about his great-uncle Oscar Marion Stewart, who was on that train, and his Mormon family had tried for 100 years to figure out why Oscar Marion was on that train and why he had died in vale arizona well he found out that oscar marion stewart died in the smoker car of the sunset limited and he had been on his way down to comfort his daughter whose husband had recently died in a railroad wreck in southern arizona and uh niall latham came down and visited the spot where the wreck had occurred and it was emotionally taken by the whole moment as a matter of fact (laughs)
0: When it was all said and done, who was ultimately held responsible?
2: Well, E. Frank Clough, the telegrapher there at Vale Station, was shocked when he saw a flash of big flames west of, the, of his station. And, uh, and soon, the brakeman from one of the trains came in, telegraphed Tucson about the wreck. And Clough said, I don't care about the cars, but I'm sorry if I killed him, anyone. Well, Frank Clough stayed and answered telegrams, until the number 11 train came in, headed for Tucson. And then he rode it in and met with superintendent of the railroad here in Tucson. He came in with a big smile on his face and a lot of bravado, but quickly retracted everything and admitted his error. Hold to return the next day, he just disappeared from Tucson and was never seen again. Frank Clough was held the one to blame for the wreck. O.C. Parker, the conductor that had left only one of the orders on the counter, was also fired and quickly rehired at the El Paso and Southwestern Railroad Company.
0: The Esmond train wreck wasn't unique, though, was it? There were many collisions that occurred because of similar communication errors in the early 20th century.
2: In fact, in 1901, 50,000 people were injured and 8,000 were killed in railroad wrecks, according to the Transportation Commission. This wreck really changed several important things in Arizona. Right after the wreck, the Southern Pacific Railroad officials met in San Francisco. They changed the process from where the conductor no longer took tickets, and they assigned that to another person called a train agent so that the conductor could only worry about getting the orders for his train. Within five years, there was a communication of block signals that helped telegraphers and dispatchers control their trains and tell them when to stop. The other thing that was interesting was two coroner's juries convened to decide this wreck. And as a result, Arizona territorial law was changed so that the justice of the peace with the most votes would be declared coroner for any wrecks or other occurrences like that.
0: How long did it take before trains started using radio communication?
2: Boy, that, uh, early on, is, it was as early as into the 30s, but uh, here on the Tucson Division, it wasn't until the 40s and 50s that we started to see radio come into play. Many of the old engineers that I interviewed uh, worked strictly with flimsies for getting train orders, and railroaders call that dark territory when there's no radio communication.
0: I mentioned this in the first part of our podcast, but I am still struck by the idea of these trains traveling through the dark of night, through the vast emptiness of the American West.
2: Oh, definitely. Just say, I had long hours without, as you say, seeing lights or even a little town. And, you know, one of the interesting things that probably isn't relevant to this, but just as I did my research for my book, there were a lot of cases of guys going crazy on the trains. And some people thought it was because of that fast movement when you know the the Saguaro's whipping by the window and stuff. But I found it kind of interesting how many people you know uh, took to shooting up the car or attacking the conductor and all kinds of weird things on the trains.
0: What was it, Bill, that made you such a railroad guy?
2: You know, I started because my great grandfather came here in 1901 and worked as a pumper filling the uh, water tank out there at Reito, Arizona. And then my grandfather became an accountant downtown in the depot there in 1910. So I was searching through family history and just started seeing all these amazing stories about how the the railroad impacted Tucson. And that got me rolling.
0: (laughs) Well, before we wrap things up, I want to ask where people can get a copy of your book, Tucson Was a Railroad Town.
2: Well, the Southern Arizona Transportation in Tucson's historic depot, there at 414 North Tool sells my book. And they also share some amazing Arizona history. On uh, trackside, the museum takes care of historic locomotive number 1673, the last steam engine ever to run here in southern Arizona. So if you get a chance, come on down to the museum and have a tour. Everybody's wearing masks and staying safe. Uh, You climb up in there and ring that bell, and you're making a part of Arizona history.
0: Thanks again for joining us, Bill.
2: Uh, I'm excited to be a part of it, Greg, and thank you again.
0: And that's going to conclude this episode of the Tucson History Podcast. It's a production of 1030 The Voice and Bustos Media. Thanks for
1: listening.